I had a startling realization sometime in the past year, probably more than one, but there's one I'm referring to at the moment. I was talking to my friend, Katie Lynn, if you're watching, hi, Katie. And she mentioned something, I mentioned something in passing about how I can't see pictures in my head. And she startled at that and said, what? You have aphantasia. I had never heard of aphantasia before, but it turns out I have it. A small percentage of a population cannot see mental images in here. So if you don't have this, this might be a little mind-blowing for you. If I close my eyes, I can know I'm thinking about something. Like I can know, okay, now I'm thinking about my mom, but I cannot see my mom's face at all. I don't see anything in there. Anybody else? Oh, man. Oh, okay. There's, there's one. We'll talk afterwards. So I had spent my whole life thinking that picture in your mind's eye was a metaphor. <laughs> when I read a descriptive passage, like in a, in a novel, I usually skip them, true confessions, because I struggle to see what it actually looks like. I can remember in church growing up, we were supposed to like read Revelation and draw what heaven looked like. You can't do that. I mean, nobody can, but anyway. <laughs> I know in these passages that the author has something vivid in mind that maybe you can see, maybe you can pull up in your mind, but I really struggle to see how those words on a page might translate to real life. That is also how I feel about scripture sometimes, especially passages as famous as the gospel passage in front of us today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many times have we heard these wonderful words? Countless. But how does that translate into real life? What does it mean to love God and love neighbor in our church, in international news, in our workplace, when we get coffee at the local place? What does it actually look like to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. You might remember the background for this gospel passage. Jesus has entered Jerusalem in the triumphal procession. He's driven the money changers out of the temple and now he's in the temple teaching. And it is teaching that blows everyone's minds and makes the religious leaders really angry. So they keep trying to publicly stump Jesus with their questions this was a very different setting. It'd be like, if I'm in here, you're trying to stump me, and if you win, you all jeer and run me out of town. Let's not do that. <laughs> That's what they're trying to do to Jesus. But every time, he exposes their hypocrisy and ignorance instead. He knows this stuff better than they do. So this encounter in Matthew 22 is the last question, the last piece of these back and forth encounters. And they, the religious leaders pull Jesus into a conversation. It's an ongoing conversation. They might've had this conversation with others. Which is the greatest commandment? Again, you might, they're hoping to expose him or get a one up over him or have an argument with him. Back in the, the time that they identified 613 distinct commandments in the law. Which one of these, Jesus, is the biggest one? Which one are you going to imply doesn't matter as much as the others, Jesus? But Jesus had done so much reflecting on the law, it seems like he didn't even break a sweat. But he does refuse to choose a single greatest. Instead, he links together two 
in one, sort of like a coat hanger with two inseparable arms on which all the rest of the law and the prophets can hang. You might also remember the background for these two commandments, Jesus quotes. One, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. This is also known as the Shema, from the first word of the verse in Hebrew. This command was so important in Judaism, it was recited multiple times each day. And in modern day Judaism, it's often still the first prayer Jewish children are taught to pray. And Jesus says the second commandment is like the first, as in of equal importance. It's from Leviticus 19, the Old Testament passage we read today. Jesus has already explored love your neighbor as yourself earlier in Matthew, and he's not the only Jewish rabbi who linked these two verses together. But what does seem to be distinct is how Jesus places these commandments on equal footing, the one like the other, inseparable. Can't argue with that the Pharisees might have said. Yet it's pretty clear that despite all their attempts at fleshing out the law, which is really what the Pharisees did, they wanted to keep the law. Here's what it means. Here's how we're going to make sure we do it. But they're not totally doing that because they aren't treating Jesus as their neighbor. Seems like they might have struggled with the same thing we struggle with. How do we actually do these commandments? What do the two greatest commandments look like, not just on the page, but in real life. First, loving God and neighbor looks like Jesus. And it looks like being all in following Jesus. Heart, soul, mind, or heart, soul, mind, strength. You've probably heard both of those at different times. It just simply means with everything that we are as human beings. There's no part of what it means to be human that we aren't to devote to the service of the Lord. This passage about whose son is the Messiah, which is not an argument we usually have in the church, right? This is Jesus turning the tables on the people who've been trying to get them. They couldn't stump him, but he stumps them. They say the Messiah is David's son, David's descendant. Well, then why does David call the Messiah Lord? They can't answer. Because if they answered that question, they would acknowledge the man standing right in front of them. The Messiah, who is also the Lord. Jesus is the descendant of David, but he's more. He has been given the name that is above every name. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's one with the one who we are to love with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think about Jesus' words. I and the Father are one. If you love me, keep my commandments. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength looks like discipleship. Being all in with Jesus, the Lord. So Jesus is both the one we are to love and the one we are to follow. He is the only individual in human history who has perfectly loved God and his neighbor as himself. It is in this way that he fulfilled the law. How did Jesus show his love for God the Father? In wholehearted devotion. His whole life revolved, revolved around loving and following the will of the Father. He spent time with the Father in prayer. He studied the words of the Father in Scripture. He trusted completely in the Father's good purposes and love, obeying him even to death on a cross. Jesus was all in with the Father. How did Jesus love neighbor? 
How did he not love neighbor? (laughs) His healings, the way he treated people, everybody with dignity, the way he defended the poor and vulnerable, even the way he drove the money changers out of the temple and rebuked the leaders for their hypocrisy. He loved the world so much, he would lay down his life, not just for friends, but for enemies as well. So Jesus shows us what it looks like to love God with everything that we are and our neighbor as ourselves. That's what God asks from us. Jesus does it. Loving God and neighbor looks like being all in with Jesus. Second, loving God and neighbor looks like learning to love ourselves too. Whoa! That's not Christian. We deny ourselves. We put to death our flesh with its fleshly desires. We look not to our own interests, but the interests of others. Doesn't scripture say the whole problem is we love ourselves too much at the expense of others? Actually, no. Scripture shows us that sin twists our loves, misshapes them from what they're supposed to be. We have a visitor in our midst today from Arizona, so we were talking about this before the service. I've spent a lot of time in Arizona growing up, especially in the mountains. Um, There are forests full of pine trees that are really tall and really straight. I've, you know, stood at the base of them and just watched them and sway in the wind. And where my grandparents used to live, or my grandpa still does, is an area called the Mugion Rim. I've talked about this before, but it's like you take some land and you push this part of it up, then there's a big ridge around so you can see for miles on the top of this rim. Well, the trees that grow on the edge of that rim are not straight and tall. Because on the edge, the wind blows up from the valley. And these trees on the edge are twisted and gnarled, misshapen from the blowing of the wind. That's what sin does to us. It twists the things our God-given desires and loves. It twists them and bends them out of shape. Like you take a piece of clay and go, That includes twisting our proper and God-given love of self. Now, when we talk about loving self, we might instantly jump to a sort of woo, like therapy, woo. I think about the Saturday Night Live skit about Stuart Smalley, which, uh, yeah, Eric was talking with you about this. That's brought it to mind. Stuart Smalley is an Al Franken character who hosts a self-help show. And his mantra as he looks in the mirror is, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. It's not what we're talking about here. There's absolutely a place for therapy and even self-esteem mantras in the Christian life. But Christians have a very distinct goal in using tools like these, which is to learn to love ourselves the way God loves us. That's the point. It's not love yourself in the abstract. It's see yourself and love yourself the way God sees you and loves you. Wow. I benefited from Stanley Hauerwas's commentary on Matthew here. He writes, to learn to love our neighbor as ourselves means we must learn to love ourselves as God has loved us. To learn to love ourselves truthfully is not easy because we most often desire to love ourselves on our own terms. The challenge Jesus presents by joining these commandments 
is to learn that one is loved by God so that one is thus able to love God and others. Such a love requires a lifetime of training in which we are given the opportunity to have our self-centeredness discovered and overwhelmed by the love of God. Learning to love ourselves the way God loves us makes us less self-centered and not more because we can only give to others the kind of love that we have first received. Loving ourselves the way God loves us means we learn to see ourselves truthfully and love ourselves as we actually are, not as who we wish we were or who we really try really hard to be, because again, God knows and loves who we actually are. He is not fooled by all of that. We might resist the idea we need to love ourselves right now because we know our sin. We're not supposed to love our sin, right? There's things, I don't want to accept that piece of me. Well, think of a child. A child, by definition, has some maturing to do. They have impulses they need to learn to control. Sometimes they hit their sibling, and that's not okay. They have a strong desire to get their way, and a mature parent still loves them fully as their seven-year-old self or eight-year-old self or two-year-old self, even as a mature parent keeps guiding that child into maturity and responsibility according to their age. If I look at my daughter, my four-year-old, and say, I'm not gonna love you until you're 10, that's gonna do great harm. Sometimes we do that to ourselves and to others, but God doesn't do that. God both sees the ways in which we need to grow into maturity in Christ and still loves us perfectly right now as we are today. That is a mystery. Hmm. There is no danger in us seeing, Ugh, this part of me is eight years old spiritually and being like, yep, that's me. The danger is in refusing to see that and allow God to work on it. So if you struggle to face yourself and love yourself as you actually are, you are not alone. Remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden once they realized that they had literally broken the world? They hid. God sought them anyway because he loved them. He seeks you too. And the face you'll see when you dare to look up is the face of Jesus loving you, calling you to himself, which will mean growing, repenting, being transformed into his image, maturing over time, but he still loves you right now as his beloved, at times immature child. Loving God and neighbor looks like learning to love ourselves the way that God loves us. And third, loving God and neighbor looks like learning to love our neighbors the way that God loves both us and them. Because you know how we've just talked about how God loves you and me? That's the way he loves your neighbor too. And yes, even your enemy. It's not that we go off in a room with our therapist and we figure ourselves out and then once we get ourselves all figured out, then we'll be able to love. No, these things are all interconnected. Um, <laughs> I'm flashing back to 
uh, math classes where, you know, you have those like beakers that are connected in certain ways and you fill up the one and it fills up the other. I feel like that's what love is like. The more that the Lord fills us up with his love, the more it stills out into love of other. Maybe even vice versa as well. Got to think about that one. So as we learn to love ourselves the way God loves us, we become better able to love our neighbors too. We learn love from the inside out through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How does God love our neighbors? The way he loves us. How does God love us? The way Jesus loved us. Jesus committed to be with us at great cost. He gave up his rights and his power for us. He was single-mindedly focused on trusting and doing the will of the Father for our good and for the good of others. He created pockets of wholeness wherever he went. And he called those who follow him to do the same things he did for the sake of others, calling them to be transformed into his image. The image of God restored on the earth. Jesus laid down his life for us. And that's the kind of love God has for us and for our neighbor. And it's the kind of love we're called to have as well. Now, let's be honest. This is really hard to live out. I wish it was as easy as just, I'm going to stand up here and say this, and we're all going to just go do it. It'd be great. It is not always clear what love requires from us, which is part of why Leviticus gives all those very particular instructions about how to love your neighbor. God knows we need help. This is why Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount and so many teachings elaborating on what love for neighbor looks like. That's why Paul and James and others build on Jesus's teaching. Remember, Paul writes, love does no harm to a neighbor. James writes, holiness looks like things like taking care of widows and orphans, not just keeping pure. Loving God and neighbor as ourselves looks like learning to see and love others the way God sees them and loves them, which again is exactly the way he sees and loves us too. It is the same love. The more we're filled with God's love for us, the more it spills out. It is the same love. Wow. Imagine how that kind of love would completely change the situation in Israel and Palestine. Imagine if Hamas realized how much God loved their neighbor. Imagine if Israel realized how much God loved their neighbor, that they're, both sides are destroying people made in the image of God. Sorry, this is not a both sides. This is a complex thing, but just imagine. This kind of love, God's kind of love, breaks cycles because it refuses to retaliate even as it refuses to ignore injustice. Imagine how this kind of love could transform our ways of doing business, that people are not just consumers to be exploited. Imagine how it would transform our politics, some humility instead of posturing, being willing to know ourselves truthfully and genuinely care about the good of all of our neighbors. Imagine how this could transform Church of the Redeemer and Highwood or Gurney or Gray's Lake or Phoenix or any of the communities in which we live. 
I know our youth are in here. Imagine how this could transform things in your school. Realizing that God loves you and every student who's there. Whatever their choices, whatever their background, that God loves them and wants them to be transformed by Jesus. How do we learn to love others the way God loves both us and them? Well, that is a lifelong question. But I want to suggest to us one practical first step, one step on which I think all the rest depends, and that is this. We are to cultivate space within ourselves in which we can actually experience God's love for us. God's love is not just a metaphor. It's not something we read about on the page and then it, it, that's it. God's love is real and available to us through Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Think of all those spiritual disciplines you know of, prayer, scripture, solitude, Lectio Divina, even um, spiritual friendship. All of these things are ways in which we can know and experience God's love for us more and more. I was remembering today, by the way, I, I know I'm croaky. It's the, yeah, tail, it just goes straight to my throat right now. I don't think I'm spreading anything other than hopefully the good news. <laughs> my sermon a few years back, it's probably more than a few years at this point, during Lent, I had the assignment of preaching on, um, we were doing a series of loving God, loving neighbor, and kind of knowing and loving self. And I had the task of preaching on <laughs> knowing and loving self. And I remember preaching that knowing ourselves, loving ourselves, starts with knowing how God sees us. And I can remember the atmosphere in the room that day was like, <gasps> how does God see me? And so many, myself included, we're startled to realize that when God sees us, he first of all sees us with love, first and foremost. And I remember, some of you might remember, I convicted myself in that sermon, which is a good thing that's supposed to happen, that I did not experientially know God's love for me. I am thrilled to report back that today I do. I do. That has been the biggest gift to me in and through the pain of the past few years. That that pain and the way it forced me to turn to God and rely on God to hear from Jesus, what do you have to say? I need a word. That carved out a place inside where I can actually hear from God and know his love for me. And where my own proper love for myself is increasing. <laughs> That's a strange thing to stand up here and say. As I experience the way in which God loves me. Do you have that internal space where you can experience God's love for you? Where you can be a child with a safe parent, a perfect parent, a loving parent? Do you have that space? What is one practical step you can take this morning? Just think about that. What is one thing you can do Maybe it's a spiritual discipline. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe you want to talk with me. Hey, I don't know. Let's talk together. Can we together learn to know God's love for us so completely that it can't help but spill out into love for one another? 
that transforming love of God that surpasses all knowledge in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love for God and love for neighbor are made real, are shown in those who follow Jesus. That's us. So Holy Spirit, may it be so. May your love flow more and more in and through us to the glory of God. We pray that you would do it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.